welcome to this episode of Conversations in Anthropology, a podcast about life, the universe, and anthropology. Produced by David Border-Giles, Timothy Neal, Cameo Daly, Maithili Maher, and Matt Barlow, and made in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. Hi, it's Maithili Maher here. This month's episode of Conversations in Anthropology was recorded just last month. And it offers, amongst other things, a really timely reflection on long-running inequities in health, society, knowledge production, and medical practice. In this conversation, Timothy Neal and David Border-Giles are joined by guest host Emma Caval, who, if you don't know, is a brilliant medical anthropologist, physician, and science and technology studies scholar at Deakin. And they team up to talk to Anne Pollock, who is Professor of Global Health and Social Medicine at King's College London. This conversation goes into Anne's long-time interest in how science, technology, and medicine relate to social justice. It's an interest Anne has explored over several books and activist work and engaged academic collaborations. Listen to hear more on this, and on hope with and without capitalism, and on long, slow thinking that takes you beyond the hot take. So, and you seem like a scholar who's maybe avoided uh, or been blithely, you know, uh, distant from uh, established disciplinary categories. You know, are you a historian, an anthropologist, an STS scholar? Does it matter to you how you're categorized? And maybe has, how has that changed over time? Yeah, it's true that I definitely am someone who identifies as an interdisciplinary scholar. And Mostly my home is within STS, so within science and technology studies or within science, technology and society. If that's kind of a choice that I can choose, then that's the discipline that I'll pick or the interest in. But I am also broadly engaged with any of the more interpretive side of the humanistic social sciences. So whether that's anthropology or sociology. And I'm also really interested in the historical underpinnings of all of the elements that I am of looking at. And so one of the things that um, has been really a driving question in my research from the very beginning is this question of how do people use disease categories, medical technologies as means of telling stories about identity and difference. And this is something that is both like very present for me, very engaged in current politics and current modes of understanding ourselves but it's also very historically rooted. And so, and part of what we can see, um, you know, in as part of the way that we can articulate our present understandings of ourselves is through understanding contrast with the past and continuities with the past as well. Of course, anthropology traditionally looks cross-culturally. And, um, you know, so one way that you can make the familiar strange and really see something that is new about identity and difference is by looking elsewhere. And I, de- I certainly do that. I'm very much kind of a citizen of the world or I aspire to be in normal times. I travel a great deal and engage deeply with people in across diverse contexts. But history has been really important to me as well. My training started out in medical sociology. Uh, I did my undergraduate degree at Brandeis um, with Stefan Timmermans was my undergraduate supervisor in a thesis about anonymous paid egg donors which of course now is one of the most overstudied topics that exists. But in the mid nineties, you know, that was not something that was widely known. Like people really, there was a lot of kind of bioethical uh, debate about 
paying egg donors, but there wasn't a lot of sense of their own perspective on what they were doing. And so um, I found it very interesting to talk with those donors and um, find out more about how they came to understand themselves differently as they kind of marketed their genetic material. And that was really the beginning of a long path for me in this kind of question. So, um, and race, ethnicity, gender, sexuality, disability, were all intertwined with that understanding of how we understand our genetic material in order to market it and sell it. And then it, you know, it continued in different ways through all my projects. So I think that really the two central questions maybe that I'm interested in all of my work are these questions about identity and difference, and then also social justice. So how are science and technology both used as tools of oppression, but also used in social justice projects. And so that's really what led me to my later work on heart disease, is really trying to understand how, um, for example, African-American cardiologists really understood what they were doing around race and pharmaceuticals, not in terms of pharmaceuticals as an alternative to social justice projects, but pharmaceuticals as a site of social justice projects. And so, you know, that is something that really kind of was an opportunity for me to bring my whole self together in a way, because I've always been an activist. And then I was doing the stuff about egg donors that was pretty apolitical, or it was very Foucauldian or something, it was political in a very theoretical sense. And doing work around racism and health and anti-racism and health was a chance to bring together kind of my activism with my intellectual engagements as well. Thanks, Anne. Uh, you mentioned your first book, Medicating Race, Heart Disease and Durable Preoccupations with Difference, which came out in 2012. And then your second monograph, uh, Synthesizing Hope, Matter, Knowledge and Place in South African Drug Discovery, published just last year. And we will uh, get to, to discussing that a bit later on. But you already have uh, another book on the go called Sickening, Racism, Health Disparities and Biopolitics in the 21st Century. And so we thought we'd actually start with the, the most recent work and work backwards in a way. Um, so can you tell us with uh, this new book what you are um, aiming to do and how your previous books and previous projects have kind of led you to this point? Yes, so this book, Sickening, is the first book that I'm really writing with an undergraduate audience of mind. In a, on one level, I'm really writing it for the, the kind of, to be the kind of book that I wish that I had in the classroom. So I spent 10 years at Georgia Tech teaching classes like biomedicine and culture and science, technology, and race. And I found that one of the, there were a lot of problems with the ways that we normally teach about race and biomedicine. And one of the problems was that we often tell the story in this kind of linear way, um, which is rooted in the history of slavery and then kind of moves forward toward the present. And one of the problems with that way of telling history is that students who are, of course, 19 years old or so, um, approach that and say, wow, I sure am glad I'm not from the past when things were really bad. And I'm instead in the present and moving toward the future where things are getting better. But of course, many students are recognizing increasingly that the future is not necessarily better unless they take part in action to make that better. So I think that the inevitable teleology is being disrupted a bit by Black Lives Matter today. But I still think that there's a problem with that mode of narration that uh, kind of posits this 
linear path and somehow winds up foregrounding the roots without foregrounding the constant recreation in the present of racism, for example, as well as sexism, homophobia, and so on. So on one level, it was like, okay, here's a textbook that will start, it starts with the postal workers who died in the anthrax attacks in 2001, and, you know, looks at the denials of care that they faced. And it does talk about, for example, the Tuskegee syphilis study, which is an important kind of touchstone for understanding African-American distrust of the medical system, but only insofar as the postal workers themselves talk about that as a touchstone for their really well-grounded lack of trust in the current government and current healthcare system. And so current as of 2001, of course, which is already before many of our students were born. But, uh, you know, so really starting there is, is a different place to start, right? So what can we find if we start somewhere else? But I also see the book as a way to introduce a bunch of themes. So around distrust, for example, but also around environmental justice, really getting um, to those questions through a chapter about the Flint water crisis and specifically the preference for General Motors machines and access to clean water over that access that the actual humans of Flint had and were denied and it became a a site of political struggle. Reproductive justice in Serena Williams' birth story. So each of the chapters kind of introduces core ideas about how our um, social structures influence health and medicine, and then also introduces students to kind of an approach to thinking through these events that often kind of pour through on a social media timeline without really uh, being tied to context and being tied to history and being tied to larger structures. And so it's a really, it's an opportunity to take things that most students will have heard about um, most of the cases, but taking the time to kind of sit through and think through how these individual incidents are an opportunity to think more deeply about water means. Uh, One of the things I really love about the book is this relationship that you um, play with uh, between the uh, event and what is uneventful. So the, the quote that I'm thinking of is when you say, the ethics of the event should not be extricated from the ethics of the uneventful. You're talking at that point about mass incarceration. But uh, so you've talked about the different events you discuss, like Hurricane Katrina, the Flint water crisis, the anthrax attack. And I think that relationship between the event and and the um, uneventful is is a really important lesson for us. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think that that is such an important problem. So I think, you know, others, of course, have been exploring this as well. I think of Rob Nixon's work, for example, on slow violence, right, about how oftentimes the things that are really the sources of much bodily suffering are the things that are hardest for us to kind of put our finger on, right? So when we're thinking about environmental degradation or when we're thinking about routine denials of care or when we're thinking about the routine stress of living in segregated environments subject to police surveillance and violence, those can be hard to actually kind of locate in where is the dose and where is the response and what is the suffering and where can I locate it? And so I think that approached in a sophisticated way, you actually can use events that are anomalous and are extraordinary 
as roots into understanding slow violence as well, or understanding the uneventful, understanding structural racism, understanding all of these things. And so I think that there's a way, I mean, the case structure is so complicated, right? Because any kind of case study approach, right? I mean, the reason that it works well in the classroom is because it has this like wonderful concreteness that students connect with. But that's, of course, is also its danger because it, um, you know, that is seductive and make it seem as if everything that is worth understanding should be able to be understood in that way. with kind of a small cast of characters and, um, you know, kind of neat lines of power. But I think that there is room, you know, think like it's really thinking slowly with these events. Um, and some of them I have been thinking about the entire time. I mean, I, I started my PhD in 2001. And on September 11th, 2001, actually, was my first day of social theory class. What was amazing, too, is that the professor did not recognize this as an extraordinary event in the way that it would be seen later. He said, oh, did anyone know anyone on the planes? Because, of course, they'd taken off from Boston and we were at MIT. So it was just like, you know, this, this idea that this was the beginning of an APOC rather than an accident was not yet clear. Be that as it may. Um, you know, so I've been thinking about these cases for a long time. And I'm trying to encourage people to think about things for a longer time, kind of to um, go beyond the hot take of the event um, and really use events as an opportunity to think through the broader structures. And so, you know, it's a real tension. And that I hope also is where the book is also of interest to scholars too. So, I mean, I want it to be accessible to undergraduate readers and I really am striving and I'm doing the revisions now and really striving to explain my terms and to, you know, really like articulate all of the background that students might need in order to really understand it. But I hope that I'm sitting with the cases and the phenomena long enough that they're of interest to scholars as well. So like my first book, it's a very U.S. focused book, but I hope really articulating the U.S. case clearly enough and not taking for granted kind of knowledge about the U.S. context, that it is accessible to international readers as well. I remember in my first book, I really wanted the chapter about Bidil, which is this drug that was just a really iconic drug for analysis of racism and biomedicine, because it was the first drug with a racial indication from the FDA. So the drug was indicated for heart failure in self-identified Black Americans, or self-identified Blacks was the term. And so... This case, right, was really interesting. It was one that was of great deal of interest all over the world um, among people who are interested in race and biomedicine. And I wanted to make sure that the chapter would be accessible to international audiences. So I had a, I was at the time living in the United States. I had a UK-based colleague who had limited, had spent limited time in the US read a chapter and highlight for me those terms that were unfamiliar. And one of the terms I remember that she highlighted was the pharmaceutical benefit management company. And I thought, on reflection, that's the most American thing that exists. But it's really hard for an American to see that those phenomena are distinctly American. And so so I really do make an effort to try to articulate the U.S. specificity in a way that, you know, you might for an anthropology of a context with which people could be assumed to be less familiar. I, um, along with Emma, was, was lucky enough to read the manuscript of sickening. And uh, we actually discussed it recently in a STS reading group that I, I co-run with Tao Fan. And, you know, it seems so of the moment now. I know that you finished it prior to the COVID-19 crisis and the recent uprisings in relationship to the death of George Floyd. 
these events that have actually kind of in an interesting way interrupted the, the flow of time. So I guess I have a, a double jointed question, unfortunately. One is, I mean, how has the events of 2020 kind of adjusted your thinking or informed your thinking about health disparities and biopolitics? And what do you think your book has to offer about understanding these recent events? Yeah, for, I had the great fortune of my colleague Natalie Valdez at uh, Wellesley taught this book manuscript um, at the same time, and it was the at the same time that the crisis was unfolding. So it was the first book that her undergraduate students at Wellesley read, kind of by Zoom, right? <laughs> and it was really interesting to talk with them about how because that manuscript was the January version, right? So. None of this was um, kind of in the offing yet. And they found it to be very useful for thinking about the current profoundly disrupted situation in which they found themselves, right? Where they had become, you know, gone from a liberal arts college situation to a far-flung one, really grappling in diverse contexts on their own with trying to come to terms with what this historical moment might mean. I spoke with them before it was as clear that it, as it is now that the racialized impacts would be so great, right? So um, you know, I think that there's kind of two moments of the COVID crisis in the U.S. that are really relevant for the book, right? So first, there's this notion of um, kind of all in this together for good or for ill, right? So on the one hand, we have um, the president making a claim of an American immunity um, because America is a safe place that is not like China. Um, and it's not like these other contexts, but even social justice advocates, right? We're really, you know, also pushing a notion of we are all in this together. We're only all as safe as our most vulnerable member. And it really harkens back to September 11 and the way that that articulation happened in September 11. And this idea, you know, one of the problems for me about the way that 9-11 was framed was that it and Vina Das and other folks who you are very familiar with has, have highlighted this as well, that, um, you know, this notion that, you know, the United States was safe and is now no longer safe in the era of global terror relied on a real erasure of those Americans who were never safe before September 11th. And I think that COVID-19, a very similar thing happened in much quicker succession so, um, you know, there was this kind of trope that emerged around March, February, March, that said, okay, now we are newly vulnerable to the world. And then as the epidemic has unfolded, you see that it actually targets those who were never safe, not before COVID-19. And so, you know, it should be, a really, you know, we shouldn't be surprised, um, you know, kind of by that impact. And I think that the Black Lives Matter protests have really highlighted that, that that bodily vulnerability in a structurally racist society is not new. And it's not about a virus and it's not about some kind of novel coronavirus, right? I mean, the novelty matters and I'm very interested in that. And, you know, I'm certainly, you know, a pharmaceutical geek and a virus geek and I love to think about how proteins fold and all of that, right? But I think that there's also this kind of larger phenomena that um, that is a broader tension. Um, and so, you know, really that is, I mean, I'm incorporating that into the book's revised introduction and conclusion as well about this kind of tension between um, the extraordinary events that highlight bodily vulnerability, but then the ways that those are very continuous 
um, you know, with the structural vulnerability that pervades U.S. society. So, you know, especially in the context where for so many people, access to health insurance is tied to access to employment. And so, you know, that is just an extraordinarily precarious situation um, in which Americans find themselves. And even uninsured Americans face many barriers, right? And so, you know, there's this, um, you know, that I think that uh, COVID-19 is a great kind of illustration of the same phenomena um, that I explore. And so it's an opportunity to see the way that this emerges in a broader context. So I think that, I mean, September 11th and COVID-19 are kind of the bookends in that sense of the book, um, you know, of this kind of grappling with, are Americans all, this, all in this together? Or are we seeing an intensification of lived inequality? I wonder if I could ask about hope in that context. Yeah. Uh, and we're also sort of working our way backwards through your, your oeuvre. So your second book, uh, Synthesizing Hope, was about a pharmaceutical company in South Africa, Itemba uh, Pharmaceuticals, um, and how they sort of struggled to sort of make a dent in the, the global pharmaceutical industry that sort of reversed some of the, uh, some of the extractive flows of, um, you know, Western uh, centre and periphery relationships around knowledge production. And one of the things I loved about the book is the way you talk about hope. Uh, not just as an affect, uh, not just as a, a structure of feeling, but a, as a practice. So I, I took that to heart and I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about uh, what you mean by hope as a practice. And then maybe, you know, in the light of what you've just said, what do you think about hope as a practice in 2020? Yeah, I mean, hope is essential, right? And it's, a, I mean, I, when I talk about hope as a practice in um, synthesizing hope, it has a couple of different meanings. I mean, on the one hand, it's just um, this literal issue of, I mean, Atemba Pharmaceuticals, I mean, Atemba is Zulu for hope, the name of the pharmaceutical company that was trying to find new drugs for TB, HIV, and malaria, but the company failed. And so, um, you know, I mean, so it failed in the sense that it never found new drugs for TB, HIV, and malaria. The drugs didn't get into bodies. It also failed as a business. It went out of business. It's no longer active, right? So. So what do you do when hope fails, right? So there's this, it's really tragic. And, you know, in a way, um, you know, my first book ends with Vidal's commercial failure. And then my second book ends with um, Atemba's failure. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I should never write about anything that I want to see because clearly I have some kind of jinx or something. But, um, you know, I don't actually think that. What I think is important with Atemba and its hopes is that a failure of a particular instance is not a failure of the dream. In this case, what happened was that a whole, like a generation of African scientists living in South Africa, so many of them South African, many of them from other countries in the region, were trained in drug discovery and development. Um, you know, they're more than trained, right? I mean, they already had PhDs from South Africa, but really had an opportunity to work through in practice you know, how to do this work. And if that, those skills have mostly stayed in South Africa and they're working in different ways. So some of them are the new, another newer initiative called H3D at the University of Cape Town, which is doing similar things, right? And so there may still be, you know, the afterlives of hope that are, and they're having very uh, strong success, especially with regard to malaria. And, you know, so who knows? I mean, it's too early to know. Um, but I think that, you know, that the kind of belief in the ability to build African capacity 
to address the key problems um, in terms of health and disease of Africa, that hope has not died. And those scientists, it lives on in those individual scientists and it lives on in broader in broader projects as well. You know, so here in the United Kingdom, a big topic is about decolonizing the curriculum. And a lot of that has to do with our students really demanding that, so in my program, which is Global Health and Social Medicine, really demanding that we understand the people who know about health in Africa can't just be kind of global North white experts. We have to know that Africans also know about disease and health in Africa. And I think that what Synthesizing Hope is interested in, in part, is the way that that's not only traditional knowledge, although it is also traditional knowledge, it's not only kind of activist knowledge, although it is also activist knowledge, science itself can also be African knowledge. And so, you know, that I, I'm very interested in that um, kind of move of saying, you know, both that, uh, you know, you fight where you're standing, right? You, you use the tools that are available. So even if we maintain some skepticism about pharmaceuticals as kind of panaceas, you know, and we can maintain some skepticism about whether the master's tools could dismantle the master's house, we also shouldn't just cede knowledge about pharmaceuticals to global pharma and say, oh, okay, we'll, we'll focus on other things. And so, um, you know, and I find pharmaceuticals to be just a very exciting uh, space to think in. Oh, but oh, to connect back to the hope as a practice, though, in the current context. Yeah, and I think that uh, this is why it's so valuable to work with our students today, because I'm just so inspired by young people today. I think that, you know, when I was coming up as an activist, most of the other activists were a lot older than me. You know, kind of my generation was not well represented. Now we are kind of a lot of us, um, you know, kind of in our 40s-ish, you know, are uh, kind of reasonably well seasoned in this space, but learning a lot from young people who are really mobilizing in impressive ways. And you can see that in the United States, here in the United Kingdom. I know that I've seen it there in Australia as well and other places. And I think that, you know, this idea, you know, that young people are really highlighting today about ways that the present situation is unbearable and it's unbearable today and we're not going to take it. And I just think is is really powerful. And so, um, so I do see a lot of hope there. Our, one of our co-producers who couldn't be here today, but who read and loved your work, uh, Mithali had a question. She was asking, you know, in, in some ways in synthesizing hope, it seems like, you know, the market uh, aspirations of the company uh, were built on hope. So she was thinking, you know, it, you know, in some ways, capitalism itself has run on hope. She was wondering if maybe what we're seeing now is uh, the beginnings of a capitalism that is bereft of hope. I mean, maybe. I do think that the that there was an entrepreneurialism of the gig economy that was a site of a lot of hope for people. Maybe uh, when I had my first academic teaching job, um, you know, there I think that people did believe a little bit more in like, oh, okay, I can find a niche for myself in this um, in this economy, and indeed I could do kind of entrepreneurship for good or something like that. You know, this kind of enterprise. And I think that um, there is a lot more skepticism of that as an approach, um, this kind of idea that you could do a social enterprise or something. And so, you know, there's a little more skepticism of that than previously and a little more recognition of the role of the state and wanting to hold the state accountable 
And this is something that has been a tension, you know, in maybe in all of my work about, you know, like, is can the state be a site of hope? And certainly for Atemba, it was. So the South African government was the kind of source of the seed funding of the company and the idea that a democratic South Africa could be accountable to the people by fostering research that would benefit the people, right? I mean, that is something that is a imaginary that is about a public-private partnership, but where the public really matters. And so I think that maybe now what we're seeing is a shift in investment, kind of affective investment, in hope that moves beyond kind of a uh, capitalist.com enterprise and instead strives to make demands of state power, military power as well, and maybe culturally too. And in some ways, I mean, you know, I think that I was just talking with a colleague of mine yesterday about this. We've been surprised at how invested students are in um, wanting statements about anti-racism from universities. So our sense as older folks was, or middle-aged, whatever we are, um, folks was that, you know, well, who cares about the statement? Like, we just care about the action. But what we've seen young people doing really successfully is demanding the statement and then demanding some accountability to the statement. And that, that um, you know, I think that, that that's an exciting kind of element of it, where it's not, it's not the statement for the statement's sake, but the statement as a site of making further demands for action. We should have full disclosure that uh, Tim is still in his 30s, so I don't know if he can really uh, participate <laughs> in this conversation. I was, yeah. just, I was saying uh, non, non, non-19 to 22-year-olds. That's how we <laughs> yeah. not. Well, no, you, I mean, you, it's, you have it's a, really, it is the really the young, too, because I remember, I mean, so when I was in Atlanta, I was in, I was in Atlanta for 10 years, and there was this really powerful division, in a way, between the students who were in their 20s, college students and high school students at the emergence of Black Lives Matter. And where, you know, it really did feel like it was the high school students who were leading. And, you know, you know, so I think, and then now those students are, of course, graduating college and doing whatever they're doing or, you know, following different paths, not, not all necessarily going through universities. But that I think that on the 30, in, the, in your 30s, Tim, you're still on our side of, um, of this, um, um, you know, really having a lot to learn from those who came up, who've come up much more recently, and who really are demanding that things be addressed in new ways. I mean, there was this moment when, you know, at Ebenezer Baptist Church, the Attorney General came to speak. So this is Martin Luther King Jr.'s church, speaking in Atlanta, and, um, you know, he was being treated very respectfully. Um, by most of the people. And there were these young people who disrupted it and were like, look, you are the top cop. What are you going to do to make us safe? And I just felt like, you know, this is a different moment. So one of the things that really makes your work distinctive is your uh, serious engagement with questions of science. As you said before, you're a, a virus geek and a pandemic geek, which I totally am too. And um, now I love epidemiology. And I suppose that's why, you know, if given all the possible disciplinary affiliations, STS is, is the one that science and technology studies is the one that you're most, most drawn to. But um, I mean, when your first book came out, I think there was still, it was still a moment where a lot of uh, social science and humanities scholars hadn't really grasped the persistence of the idea of biological race or the idea of 
different different genetic variation in different populations to to speak to the particular kind of science that was uh, important in that book. And I think going through your work, yeah, with serious engagement with with pharmaceuticals, with the with the way that that anthrax gets spread and its symptoms. I mean, and with the uh, importance of chronic disease management, all of these issues, you know, you're really, you speak with a lot of knowledge and a mastery of, of, of that uh, material. So I suppose my question is, yeah, how have you found it going through the social sciences and the different disciplines that you've engaged with over, the, over these years? Have you seen a, a change in how your kind of scientific knowledge or your your engagement with science is seen um, in the social sciences and humanities? Maybe. I think especially in terms of race, because my interest has always been in pharmaceuticals rather than in genetics, right? So one of the reasons that I'm interested in pharmaceuticals is that they transform the body, right? Like, so they are material things, but the whole point of pharmaceuticals is that the body is not a fixed thing and that it can be transformed. And so one of the things, of course, that's happened in conversations about genetics is also increasing attention to malleability. So whereas in the early 21st century, a lot of the conversation about um, race and science was really about kind of contesting eugenics, where the idea was that at least within the life course, your genetics were set, right? So, you know, we want, you know, we want like uh, there could be breeding or whatever, right? Like kind of. 20th century, uh, 19th and 20th century models of eugenics that you might have kind of a fitter future. Um, But within the individual's life course, your genetics are set, right? Um, And so that that was really what seemed important to a lot of people working in race and science was to contest any connection between race and science, indeed. So say like, okay, actually, there's no connection between race and science at all, because science seemed as if it represented the fixed, and race, we wanted to see transformation towards social justice. But I think that the science has shifted. And so I think that was always true for pharmaceuticals, um, you know, that it was never the case that there was this idea of race is fixed um, for the people who were kind of advocating for Bidel. I mean, sure, there are wackadoodle right-wing doctors who got on board, but for the African-American cardiologists who were the principal investigators um, for those trials and so on. You know, there was never this idea that race was fixed or this kind of neo-eugenic thing or this idea that, oh, we can just treat race as a molecular thing that is devoid of the social. That was never the case for them, right? I mean, they, they were well aware of it happening on all the levels. But I think what's been interesting is that now in our kind of post-genomic era, that's being increasingly recognized, of course, in your work as well, right? Throughout, right, and this idea that um, you know it's not the case that biology is on the side of the fixed and social is on the side of the malleable, um, but that there is both fixity and malleability, both continuity and discontinuity, both transformation um, and kind of stability in both. And indeed, I mean, I think Ruha Benjamin highlights this really well in her work about the way that, if anything it's often easier for people to invest in the idea of transformation on the biological level than the social level. And so, um, you know, we need both. Um, you know, we, need, we, we definitely need both uh, to operate. Um, you know, and one of the reasons I think I love pharmaceuticals is because they operate both, right? So um, I think probably the easiest case um, to make 
um, you know, for our undergraduates, you know, where we're trying to teach them medical anthropology or these related things, right, about how, okay, you know, um, illness is both biological and social um, and is symbolic and is material and so on. And, you know, I think pharmaceuticals are such a great case for that. And students really resonate with it. They can understand that pharmaceuticals are both material and symbolic. They both have matter and meaning, you know, and so, you know, this is something that um, is that I just find really compelling throughout. And I think that um, because of that quality of pharmaceuticals, they become an appealing site for thinking about social categories as well. So, you know, you can refigure the biological world and refigure the social world at the same time. So whether that is in a decolonizing context like South Africa, or whether it's an anti-racist mobilization within the United States, um, medicine is a site of struggle rather than an alternative to struggle. As somebody who is personally very interested in uh, studying up or what's sometimes called studying up or studying elite cultures or professional cultures, I guess I'm always kind of curious about how you get to talk to these people because I always think there's this, you know, there's stories there. It's not like going to just a place, you have to find access and access takes time. So I guess I'm, I'm quite interested if you could tell us a little bit about how you have gained access to some of these elite pharmaceutical medical worlds over time and how the people you encounter see your work. Do they, yeah, do they, do they is, see it at all? Uh, or, or, you know, they I, do. They do. Yeah. So my, um, at the Atlanta book launch of Synthesizing Hope, um, I had two respondents um, about the book, Amit Prasad, a very important post-colonial science and technology studies scholar, and Dennis Leota, who's one of the drug discovery scientists at the heart of the book. You know, it's been really interesting to get to know these elites. I mean, I kind of contacted Dennis Leota a bit on a lark. So Dennis Leota is one of the co-founders of Atemba Pharmaceuticals, an American drug discovery scientist who is just absurdly successful, right? I mean, um, one of the most important drug discovery scientists in the world. He discovered second generation antiretrovirals, he together with collaborators. So two of the three drugs that you take in the triple cocktail on the National Health Service here in the United Kingdom or on Medicare in Australia are his drugs, right? Same, same thing with PrEP, right? So two of the three drugs. So um, he also discovered the oral treatment for hepatitis C, which is famously $1,000 a pill. I mean, there's a whole complicated history there, right? And so um, what I happened to, I mean, I heard him speak in Atlanta um, about wanting to uh, build African capacity to, uh, that this was kind of his, a new step that he was taking. So I heard him speak and I didn't speak to him at that event, but I cold emailed him later and said, you know, oh, you know, you mentioned this company that you were founding and I found it really interesting. I was wondering if I could talk to you about it. And his assistant wrote me back and said, okay, would a week from Wednesday at 2 p.m. Are you free or whatever? I was like, absolutely. <laughs> you know? I will be. And I will be. And, you know, and I think that um, in a way it was kind of funny because I feel like he was kind of like, oh, finally, you're here. I mean, I think he was kind of expecting anthropologists or historians to become interested in the discovery of antiretrovirals because the discovery of HIV, the virus, has been so well studied. And of course, he's been in conversation with these guys and they are overwhelmingly guys, right? So, you know, he's been in conversation with these guys who discovered HIV, the guys who, you know, did the early epidemiology and stuff. He's been in discussion with all these people for a long time. And they've had historians and anthropologists, you know, working with them. 
And so, you know, why have we not looked at the drug discovery scientists? So it was kind of this funny thing where he's like, oh, of course, someone is now interested in my version of the story. Um, and, and indeed, you know, so that was fantastic. And then he introduced me to the other scientists. So the other scientists involved were coming to Atlanta for a biotech meeting. And so he introduced me to them. And so through his um, kind of opening the door, they were very willing to talk to me um, and give me a lot of access. I mean, I think one thing is, is it's a lot easier to focus on kind of the, either the academic parts of the pharmaceutical industry, because we're colleagues, right? We have kind of a peer sense. So even though of course I'm much junior to him and in a less prestigious field, um, at the time I was in the literature, media and communication department, um, you know, so much lower status um, department than chemistry, but uh, which was his department at Emory um, up the street. But at the same time, you know, like academics talk to each other about our research, right? So that's like a very appropriate thing. So you can access the pharmaceutical industry through your own academic colleagues. Um, and then of course, also it being at the periphery rather than at the center. So I mean, I know lots of people who have tried to get access to Pfizer and to Eli Lilly and to like, you know, these, the, the big pharma. And that is hard. That is really hard because those are highly controlled um, kind of information flows. And so, so I think that part of it is just about finding, you know, where is a point of common ground between yourself and scientists? So, okay, we're both academics in Atlanta. Indeed, your big brother is at my university. And I think that that was true for my first book as well, talking with cardiologists, you know, so overwhelmingly ones with academic affiliations, so I met at conferences who were very public facing. Those are the ones who are easier to access and often want to tell their version of the story. And I think for, for the first book, you know, it was easy to access in part because there was a sense that, the, that this was a generation that was at risk of being forgotten. So, um, you know, that the really pioneering work of the founders of the Association of Black Cardiologists and the International Society for Hypertension and Blacks, that there was this sense that, that these older, mostly men, um, you know, wanted their story to be told so that future generations would somehow still know about it, right? And so they were very happy to talk with me, um, you know, and it often is, you know, it's just like kind of one key person who takes an interest and is like, oh, yeah, you know. I, I want the history to be told, you know, kind of taking, uh, taking you under their wing or something like that. Just as a quick follow-up to that, I guess we were curious about your understanding of your positionality and how that's developed over the course of working on entanglements of race and social justice. Yeah, I mean, so definitely being a young white woman was very much part of the way that everyone has interacted with me. Um, so I guess now that I'm no longer young, I mean, I'm still young compared to them, I guess. I don't know. I don't know I don't how like, this has become so generational. Like, you know, where has this conversation gone awry? But um, you can edit out some of the preoccupation with age. Anyway, but uh, no, the, you know, there have been so many moments. So with, you know, my first project where... Um, one of the, I remember one of the cardiologists responding to a question about the nurses study that was talking about aspirin and talking about the differences between the populations in a particular study, which were overwhelmingly white and middle-class and thin, and how that might or might not apply to their patient populations, which were obese and older. And, you know, and he basically like gestured to me and said, gestured at me, like in the audience saying, you know, oh, we're for skinny white women from Boston, this could be a thing, right? Um, but you know, our patients, right? And it's like, 
So there's a lot of that, um, you know, the idea of explaining across difference was fundamental to the way they tell me the story, right? Like they're not assuming that I know the story already. They're assuming that they're going to need to explain it to me, which is true, you know. And in a way, I mean, I think many anthropologists, of course, know this from their field sites too. By the time you're being made fun of, like in an audience, like you're in, you know, like you're out, but you're in, right? And that it's precisely the comfort with kind of calling you out that shows that they see you as kind of part of the conversation, right? And certainly, you know, so this kind of idea of sharing with the future generations story was important in my first two books, you know, that there were aging men at the end of their careers who are really wanting to welcoming the chance to have someone, to have someone document that. And someone who's not a chemist and not a, but who knows a lot about chemistry, you know, so I think that there's a, a way that the, the, also even the fact that I was at MIT and then at Georgia Tech, like these are known places, um, you know, kind of on their map. And now I'm at King's College London, which is very known for biomedicine as well, that there's this way that they're like, okay, I'm not going to assume that you know anything about this, but I can, I can assume that you can understand it. <laughs> and so, um, you know, that, that has really shaped the way that my various expert interlocutors have engaged with me. Can I ask about what some of those relationships across disciplines uh, enable politically? Uh, I've seen that you, along with a few colleagues, set up the, uh, the Race and Racism in Contemporary uh, Biomedicine Working Group a few years ago. Yeah, so, I mean, I'd love to hear some about that. And then also more generally, what, you know, what do those collaborations enable us to do in an anti-racist capacity? Yeah, I mean, that is that was such a great kind of group that we had um, at Georgia Tech and across Atlanta. I think that these things are often, you know, quite short-lived and the group exists in a slightly modified form now. Um, but really, it was the, there was kind of a continuation of groups that I was a part of in Atlanta. So the first was Racism and Health which Kamara Jones at the CDC ran. And then that kind of petered out or she moved on to other things or I don't know exactly what happened. And then um, at the same time, I met um, other academics um, at my institution, which was Georgia Tech at the time, in applied physiology and biomedical engineering. And there was, and we were all kind of the same generation. So we were recently tenured academics. There was a call, and we had had multiple conversations you know, kind of informally about, oh, if we get the chance, maybe we should do something together, but not really clear exactly what it would be. And there was a call for some seed funding for recently tenured academics to build something. And so um, Manu Platt in biomedical engineering and Lewis Wheaton in applied physiology and I founded this working group on race and racism in contemporary biomedicine, where we would really explore together um, you know, how we could incorporate attention to race and racism in their research, right? So in science and engineering, and then also, you know, how we could make kind of social science critique and engagement relevant, translatable, communicable, like in like more authentic dialogue. And so, and there were um, diverse uh, social scientists involved right from the start. So Jennifer Singh in sociology at uh, Georgia Tech. Melissa Creary was finishing up her PhD at the Institute for Liberal Arts at Emory. Devalina Roy, it's joint in neuroscience and women's studies. And there were a bunch of folks, right? Uh, a, chemist, a chemistry professor um, at Spelman, Kimberly Jackson, and um, 
quantitative sociologist for Emory, Abigail, now Aliasa Sewell, you know, there were like, there's this, this confluence of people who are really interested in having these conversations across biomedical engineering, biology, and social sciences and humanities. And yeah, and we, and we published and we published a nice um, kind of lab meeting, as it's called, in Catalyst, uh, Feminism, Theory, Technoscience, a journal, which I'm now a lead editor on. But, uh, you know, we had like these sets of conversations that were just really compelling. And I think for me, it was particularly meaningful because most of the scientists involved are Black and really thinking through how commitment to anti-racism in kind of conceptually and real support, authentic engagement for actually existing Black scientists can and should be in conversation with each other. Um, I mean, I would really recommend uh, that folks look at some of Manu Platt's videos. He's done a couple of kind of keynotes about kind of being an African-American in biomedical engineering, but then also, um, you know, how to do anti-racist work in those spaces. And, um, you know, really, I think that that is an important call for those in STS and more kind of critical social scientists to remember that it's, um, you know, that we should be looking for allies who are engaged and inspired by anti-racist praxis within the labs as well. Um, so whether it's anti-racist or decolonizing, um, and that has to include scientists of color. That is so inspiring, Anne, and um, I'm, I hope that we can get versions of that working group, you know, all over the world and, and uh, that I personally am a big fan of uh, social scientists going out and uh, finding uh, scientists who are, are like-minded and who are really thinking through, you know, the same questions from a, a different perspective. Um, you mentioned the a journal that you were really uh, instrumental in starting up, Catalyst, and you've been really instrumental in, I think, in, in feminist STS, feminist science and technology studies um, over the last while, although your book's are not you know, specifically uh, about feminism and women. And you've got you've had some really key articles like Heart Feminism, but uh, institutionally you've been so important in feminist STS. So can you talk a little about uh, how that how that has been, how it's been to you know uh, be part of uh, not I mean feminist STS has been around for quite a long time, but really solidifying it through Catalyst and other means. Yeah, I mean, feminist STS is definitely my home, right? Um, so, so I think that even though most of my work doesn't engage with questions of gender, with exception, of course, of some articles, as you mentioned, so, but all of my work is rooted in feminist technoscience. So, you know, if you look at, like, the citational practices, or you look at kind of these central concerns, they are all very much about feminist STS. So, you know, not only talking about what is the world as it is, but also what is the world as we would have it be, that I think is a real transition, that that's a really important element of what draws me to feminist STS, as opposed to, you know, kind of something that where you imagine you can just sit back, the idle philosopher, and not be engaged. And, and there is, of course, some feminist STS that gets very abstract and disengaged from the real existing world or labs or so on. But but I think that the um, that part of what I find so appealing is the particular genealogy of feminist STS that is engaged with really wanting to make claims for demands of science and demands of the state and demands of many institutions with 
also profound skepticism about the truth value of the claims being made, right? So, you know, so really that um, kind of combination, I think is really important for me. And yeah, and I think that all of, yeah, all of my work, so even though a lot of it is focused on anti-racist, like that's the definitely kind of the core of it, the perspective is informed by intersectional feminism. And I've always been engaged in that kind of activism as well. So not just academically, but also, you know, so when I was in Atlanta, I was on the board of the feminist bookstore in the city, right? So it's like, you know, these kinds of things about thinking about feminist spaces and uh, how to make those be authentically anti-racist spaces that are both intellectually engaged and committed to a a world of social justice. Speaking of the world uh, that is versus the world as we would have it, I was wondering about your experience as a journal editor Um, Mm. and something we've talked about periodically uh, on this podcast is, I guess, the changing world of journal publishing and whether you have any reflections, you know, in your experience on on possibly the the future of journal publishing, what what you wish journal publishing looked more like. I guess I'm interested in, yeah, your reflections on that. Well, this has been something I've been thinking a lot about because, of course, journal publishing through the pandemic has been really difficult. Um, But one of the things that I've been surprised by is that so I'm involved with two journals. So one is Biosocieties. I'm an associate editor for Biosocieties, and then I'm on the lead editorial team for Catalyst. And one of the things that was striking was that it became extremely difficult to find peer reviewers for Biosocieties. Everyone was just responding, no, I'm overwhelmed, I'm too busy, I'm, you know, whatever. Whereas for Catalyst, it was that was not the case. And it was just such a compelling thing. And especially when you think that, I mean, you know, we heard so much kind of in the academic media about how women are struggling through the pandemic. And of course, most of Catalyst's journal contributions are from women, as well as trans men and non-binary people and some men, right, in Catalyst as well. But our reviewers, right, are definitely majority women, um, as variously defined. Yet, the investment was such that people were saying, you know what, I have limited capacity in this moment, but I'm going to devote some of that capacity to Catalyst. And I just found that to be really inspiring. And we think that people, um, I th- maybe because it is an open access publication, it's very kind of, there's lots of graduate students who publish there as well as well-established names. And it's really diverse in terms of its disciplinary approaches that there is a lot of community investment in it. And I think there is community investment in biosocieties too, but I think that, yeah, the, the explicitly feminist kind of foundation is a route toward higher engagement of academics who are overwhelmed. I mean, we're all overstretched. I certainly am. I'm, I have the misfortune of being education lead in my department <laughs> during this time. So I have to oversee the transition to fully flexible learning and do all of these things, right? And so. Um, you know, so I'm certainly overstretched too, in addition to my research commitments and so on. There, so I think that there has to, it has to feel like, you know, more than just a um, kind of professional tick boxing exercise in order for people to stay engaged with the journal, with supporting the journals as an enterprise. You've been listening to another episode of Conversations in Anthropology, a podcast about life, the universe, and anthropology. This podcast is produced by David Border-Giles, Timothy Neal, Cameo Daly, Maithalim Maher, and Matt Barlow, and made in partnership with the American Anthropological Association.
To learn more about this podcast, find us on Twitter. We're at AnthroConvo. And don't forget to rate and review us on your chosen podcasting platform.